Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here today. Another uh, big group. Uh, first service was uh, just packed, and so it's really cool. Hey, uh, why don't you go ahead right now and open your Bibles to Genesis 29. That's where we're going to study uh, together today. Or if uh, Shelly talked about it, you want to follow along in our live event on version. Uh, the text is there as well as a way for you to ask questions or take a survey, uh, follow along with some notes, all those kinds of things. Over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to look at four couples in the Old Testament and uh, see if there are some things in their lives that could help us have better marriages. And I think, you know, any of us that are married, uh, we certainly want that. And if you're single and thinking about someday I'm going to get married, great series for you. And uh, some of the principles that we're going to talk about in relationships, if you're uh, single and thinking I'm never going to get married, uh, these, uh, these uh, issues uh, apply to those kinds of other relationships too in many ways. Uh, do you remember when you got engaged? I, um, if you're married, uh, I was, uh, there's a commercial that played, I saw it over the holidays several times, it's a Walmart commercial, and actually we're going to in a moment play a clip for you, uh, unfortunately we couldn't find the English version, we could only find the Spanish version, so we're only going to play the video, not the audio. For some of you that wouldn't be a problem, for the rest of us that's a bit of an issue, but, um, so let me describe what happens here, part of it, and then you'll visually, you'll appreciate the commercial though, just from what you can see. So uh, in this uh, commercial, the, the wife is in the kitchen, and uh, she says to her husband, who's carrying uh, a pan to the dinner table for Christmas, she says, honey, have you seen my wedding ring? Okay, and he continues to walk on out. Now, uh, watch what happens here in this uh, commercial. even better with the, the audio but uh. now I'm guessing when you got engaged one of you might have been surprised but it probably wasn't the one giving the ring you know who was a surprise uh, ladies let me ask you how many of you when you were a little girl you dreamed of someday I'm going to get married and I'm going to have the perfect wedding and marry the perfect husband how many of you that was your dream now, quite a few hands. Guys, how many for you, when you were a young man, you dreamed that I'm going to get married someday and I'm going to be intimate with my wife twice a day and three times on Sunday? How many of you were dreaming? Yeah, you were dreaming, all right. You were dreaming, all right. Now, listen, marriage, if you've been married more than a few days, you have come to realize that the reality is not quite so perfect, is it? Now, certainly, marriage is a wonderful, glorious thing. But it can also be hard. Marriage is filled with joy, but it is also full at times of some hard work and some tears. Uh, the Bible says that marriage is a profound mystery. And again, any of us that have been married more than a few days, we can relate to that, can't we? Because there are times when marriage seems like an unsolvable puzzle. And yet, yet it's interesting that over the last two decades, uh, people who've done some survey work have found that the satisfaction level is much higher for people who are married than for people who are single or divorced or living together. They are much more satisfied with life 
in a healthy marriage relationship. So I want to spend some time today looking at a rather unusual story in Genesis chapter 29 that I hope there will be some lessons there that can help us navigate through the profound mystery of marriage. So if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't continued to find your way there, let me kind of set the stage for what happens in the first 13 verses of Genesis 29, and then we're going to actually jump in and start reading in verse uh, 14. So the chapter starts off talking about Jacob, and uh, Jacob is traveling. But the reality is Jacob really is running. I mean, he's running from his past. He's running from some mistakes. He's running from things at home. He's traveling, but really in his heart, he's running away from things. He uh, comes across this well that's covered by a big rock where there are some sheep there that come to be watered. And he gets into a discussion with the shepherds, and he discovers that they know his uncle, Uncle Laban. And uh, Uncle Laban has a daughter. And that daughter, Rachel, comes to the well. And he sees Rachel and uh, begins to have a conversation with her. Now, you're going to do some math later on here. You're going to kind of figure this out. And uh, let me just tell you, it's going it's to seem like it gets a little weird with Jacob and Rachel since she's his cousin. But it's a different time, different culture. Okay, It's not like they just kind of live. We would say they maybe lived in the backwoods, but that's really not it. You know, they, it's just a different culture, okay? So don't think, oh, that's really weird what's going to happen here. So anyway, uh, Jacob greets Rachel. Uh, they discover that they have this relationship, that uh, they're cousins and his uncle, and she invites him home to meet his uncle Laban. And that's kind of where we pick it up. Uh, verse uh, 14, uh, it says this. After Jacob had stayed with him, with Laban, for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, let me, let's just talk frankly here for a second. Scholars agree that this, what they say about Leah, Leah is just a polite way of saying she is unattractive. They're not talking about the strength of her eyes. You know, if they were, they would have said, you know, Leah has weak eyes, Rachel, she's got strong eyes, but it's not what it says. It doesn't say, you know, all that poor Leah, she's got weak eyes, but boy, that Rachel, you know, that girl, she's got 20-20 vision. She's got the strongest eyes. No, you know what he's saying here is Leah's unattractive, but Rachel, Rachel is beautiful in form, and she's just beautiful. Now, I, I went to Bible college, and in Bible college, they teach you how to really dig into the original language, the text here, and to try to reconstruct what the, la- the text says. And so I did some work this week, kind of try to dig in to the text here and understand exactly what it's saying, get into the Hebrew, kind of reconstruct so that maybe I could give you a picture today of what the text seems to say these two girls look like. And so the best thing I could come up with, here's as close as I could come, um, here's what I think the text is saying that Leah looked like. And according to the text, Rachel looks something like this. Okay, all kidding aside, here's the point. It seems that Jacob is very concerned about externals. And maybe I'm reading into the story, but as the story progresses here, it becomes pretty obvious that Jacob is very focused on finding someone, a spouse, that will be able to meet his needs. And isn't that what happens in a lot of relationships in our culture? People today have called it the the time of the me marriage. There has been a slow but consistent movement from God's design, which is a relationship focused on meeting the needs of your spouse. 
And slowly we have moved to more of this idea that the relationship is about making sure that I get my needs met. I want you to see in this story where that erosion leads and some things that happen as a result of thinking that way. Look at uh, verse 18. So Jacob was in love with Rachel, which is an interesting thing that it comments on that. I mean, only a month has passed, and in their culture, Jacob would have seen Rachel and maybe had some interaction with her, but Laban in their culture would not have allowed Jacob to have a lot of interaction with Rachel at this point. And so, again, very much you have to read between the lines here maybe and say, you wonder, is Jacob really in love or is he just physically attracted to Rachel at this point? Anyway, he said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So they basically, they agree on this deal. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, I think that as the seven years went on, he really did grow to have a very genuine love for Rachel. I mean, this, this is a very romantic story it would make a great chick flick i'm telling you and i think that over time jacob developed a very very genuine love for rachel and certainly having love as a part is a vital part of the healthy foundation of any marriage but i want you to notice what happens to the emotion of marriage of love in this story And how quickly the emotion of love becomes something else as the story continues. Look at uh, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. Now, there is no way around it. The language that's used here, it's not polite. The, The way that Jacob speaks here, there's nothing gentle about it or tender. There is nothing romantic or loving the language that's used here jacob speaks very harshly and here's what jacob says really jacob says almost literally i've done my part now send her over here so she can do hers and here's what happens in our relationships when we move from being focused on meeting the needs of our spouse to making sure that my needs get met we tend to become very demanding That's kind of where Jacob finds himself. He is very demanding. I want my needs to be met. Send her over here to meet my needs. And you know what? That happens sometimes in our marriage relationship. Rather than a covenant that is about laying down our lives for our spouse, it becomes more of a contract. I did this, so now you deliver that. Paul, when he is um, writing Uh, to some Christ followers in a city called Ephesus. And Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And in one of those letters, he addresses the subject of marriage. And in a long paragraph where he begins to describe what a really good marriage looks like, he begins with these important words in, in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, it He starts with those two words, and further, which immediately says to me, you know what, I need to go back and look at what he has just said previously. And when you begin to go back, you realize that in verse 21, in the Greek text, is the last clause in a long sentence where Paul has been describing the marks or the characteristic of someone's life who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, 
Paul's been describing what the life of someone looks like who is really following Jesus. And Paul says that one of the marks of somebody who's really following Jesus is that they have been willing to give up their own pride and their own selfishness and to humbly serve others. And from that point then, Paul launches into this discussion about what marriage is supposed to look like. And so it's pretty clear to understand, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that in the marriage relationship, a healthy marriage is going to be marked by people who are willing to give up their own pride and their own selfishness and humbly serve their spouse. You know, when people are having trouble in their marriage, here's one of the first questions they ought to ask. Am I more concerned about myself or my spouse? Am I being selfish? Am I looking to make sure that they meet my needs or am I looking to meet their needs? Now, let me give you some examples of, the w- of things that that plays itself out in. It plays itself out in the sexual part of your relationship. You know, it's the common things we hear when we counsel people. Uh, it's, a, it's a wife who says, well, I, you know, I don't want to meet his needs sexually because he's never romantic with me. Or it's a husband who says, Well, you know, I don't care that she's tired at the end of the day. She ought to be meeting my needs. Or even in the intimate act of sex, the focus becomes not making sure that I bring pleasure to my spouse, but making sure that I'm pleasurable. It's a wrong way to think. Or how about in our finances? It's the the husband who, or or the wife, one of them, either one, who without asking or having any conversation just goes out and spends money on frivolous things. You know what they're saying in doing that? They're saying, I don't really care about your needs. I don't care what you think. I'm just making sure my needs are met. I'm going to go spend this money. But what about in the area of communication? You know, it's the, it's the husband who comes home and says, you know, I, I know my wife needs communication. I know she needs to have conversation, but I'm just tired. I, 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 I can't do it. Or the wife say, who says, you know, why doesn't he ever communicate with me? I know he's tired at the end of the day, but why doesn't he have a conversation? And it's this, this very demanding attitude that happens because we have allowed the relationship to erode to the place where we're more worried about making sure my needs are met than we are getting rid of our own pride and selfishness and putting the needs of our spouse ahead of our own. Here's another thing that happens in this uh, story beginning in verse 22. Yeah. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And I know you're wondering, well, how does that work out exactly? Uh, A couple things are involved here. One, she's probably wearing a veil. Secondly, this feast probably involved a lot of alcohol. Those two things together, that's how it happens. Verse 24, And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now here's another principle that's true. When you let your marriage begin to erode to the place where it's become more about getting your needs met than meeting the needs of your spouse. And here's a principle. You think you've gone to bed with Rachel, but you wake up with Leah. Now before you jump way ahead, give me time to explain, okay? Because I know some of you are going, what in the world? Talking about this in church? Come on. Listen, if you go into your marriage relationship thinking that your spouse has the ability to meet all of your needs, you're going to wake up some morning very disappointed. 
Because there is no person on earth that has the ability to meet all of your needs. And if you go into marriage thinking that, you're going to spend a lot of time being very dissatisfied. And there may even be some places along the road where you're tempted to bail out of the marriage. No one is, no person on earth is capable of meeting all of your needs. Now, here, here's, a, here's a reason for that part of that is an issue. How many of you are the same today as you were a year ago or five years ago? I mean, we're not, are we? Aren't we constantly changing and growing? I mean, we, we are. I, I'm not the same person today that I was when I got married. I see life differently. I respond to situations differently. I like different foods, and different foods don't like me anymore. You know? I, I've changed. Now, there are some things that are still the same. I still love God with all of my heart. I still like steak. I still completely love my wife. I still like the Buckeyes. You know, some things have stayed the same. But I promise you, Peg and I are not the same people that we were 22 years ago when we got married. We have changed. A lot of it for the good. Some of it probably not so good. But we have changed. And if if I got married thinking that Peg was going to always meet all of my needs as the person that she was when I married her 22 years ago, somewhere along the way, as she changed and I changed, I could easily grow dissatisfied. See, here's, here's the reality. We sometimes, our culture has taught us to look for the one, right? I mean, this is true for Leah. Leah, you know, is now basically by this act, she's now also married to Jacob. And she longs for him to be the one in her life that brings fulfillment and happiness. And we see it in some things that she does in, some, in the next part that we're not going to read this morning, but you can read it on the U version there or in your own Bible. She, uh, she does all kinds of things to try to win Jacob's love. She gives herself to him physically. She begins to bear children for him. And one of the saddest things you read in Scripture to me is found after she has the, gives birth to the second or third son. She actually says, after one of those births, she says, maybe now Jacob will love me. I mean, isn't that sad? That she was so desperate. You see, she bought into, just as Jacob did earlier in this story, something that our culture teaches. Our culture teaches that if we want to be fulfilled and happy, then we've got to find the one. We've got to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And so boy meets girl, and she thinks, oh, he's so, so cute. And he thinks, oh, she's so wonderful. Maybe they're the one. Maybe they're the one that's going to bring all the fulfillment and happiness that I've been looking for in life. But wouldn't it be much better and much more realistic if their thought went something more like this, you know what, I think we have a, a spiritual connection. And you know what, I, I see that they, they really love God. I think maybe I have found the two. Because you know what, we, we all need the one in our life. But the one that we all need in our life is God. He is the only one who has the capacity to truly bring us fulfillment and to meet all of the needs that we have in life. God is the one. He's the only Mr. Perfect. And our spouse, our spouse becomes the number two. And together, we have a wonderful relationship. Now, 
Oh, I forgot the story. It doesn't totally fit here, but I got to tell you the story because it's funny. Okay, okay, I'll make it fit. So I, I think maybe I've used this before, but uh, have you heard about the husband store in New York? It's where women can go and shop for a husband. And uh, when they go into the store, there are multiple floors that they can uh, search around for the right guy on. Now, there's only one rule, though, and the, the biggest rule is when you go into the store, as you progress up each floor, you can't go backwards. So once you go to the second floor, you can't go back to the first floor and, and so on. So a woman goes into the husband's store one day, and she begins to look around. On the first floor, she finds a sign that says, all of these men um, have a job and love God. She thinks, well, that's a good starting place, but I think I can do a little better than that. So she gets on the elevator, goes up to floor two, and she gets there, and there's a sign that says, all of these guys have a job, love God, and love kids. And she thinks, well, we're moving in the right direction, but I still think I can do a little better than that. So she gets back on the elevator, goes to the third floor. Here the sign says, all of these guys have a job, love God, love kids, and they're really good looking. She thinks, okay, now we're, we're getting somewhere now. We're getting somewhere, but I... Let's see if I can't still do better. So she gets back on the elevator. She goes up to the fourth floor. All these guys, the sign says, they uh, have jobs, love God, love kids. They're drop-dead good-looking, and they help do the housework. And she's thinking, wow, I don't know if it gets any better than this, but I'm going to try one more time. So she goes to the fifth floor. There the sign reads, these guys all have jobs, love God, love kids, help with the housework. They're drop-dead gorgeous, and they have a romantic streak. And she's beside herself with joy, thinking, this is so incredible. This is what I've always been looking for. I can't wait to see what's on floor number six. So she gets back on the elevator, goes up to floor number six, and there the sign says, congratulations, you are visitor number 4,363,112. There are no men on this floor. This floor is simply to prove that some women can never be satisfied. (laughs) It fit earlier, it doesn't fit now, and I'm really sorry. All right, let's move on. So if you, if you get married and thinking that you are going to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Perfect somewhere along the way, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to think you went to bed with Rachel and you're going to wake up with Leah. Now, move on to verse uh, 35. After Leah's story, there is something, there's something in the story that's been missing if you've been paying attention. You, you know what's been missing? There is no prayer, it doesn't seem. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of seeking God. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of a connection with God. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of faith. It seems up until this point in the story that everybody has just been looking out for what can, what kind of, how can I get my needs met? What can I do for myself? And they haven't been asking for God's involvement. But all that seems to change after Leah gives birth to her fourth child in verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. You see what changes there? She says, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And maybe, again, I'm reading into the story, but you know, here's what I think. I, I think Leah finally got to the point that she quit trying to find fulfillment in her relationship with her husband, and she started looking for fulfillment in her relationship with God. Listen, if you want to have a healthy marriage, then you have to come to the point where you understand that fulfillment is found in my relationship with God. God has to be first in your life. That means making Him a priority every day, spending time in His Word. It means making weekly worship a commitment of you and your family. It means this learning that you're going to find your strength in Him and not in other people. And until you get to the place 
where you can make God number one in your life, you will continually struggle to find fulfillment in life. Now, you know what? All of us have some goals for our marriage. For some people in our culture, it's exactly what we've been talking about this morning. Their goal is simply, I'm going to get married so that somebody will meet my needs. Others have a much more noble goal. Their goal is we want to try to have a healthy marriage. And I want to tell you, that's a good goal. I honor that goal. We're going to talk about that goal in weeks to come. But here's my question for you. What if there was a goal that was even bigger and deeper than that? I think there is. When you go back and again, you read what Paul writes in that letter, that long letter about marriage. I think he puts out a whole different goal. Because what Paul seems to say there is that our goal in marriage should be the same goal that Jesus had for his church. And Jesus' goal for his church was that he was willing to lay down his life so that his church, his bride, we, could be holy and clean. He didn't die on the cross for us because we were lovely. He died so that he could make us lovely. And Paul seems to indicate from what he writes there that our goal in marriage should be a willingness to lay down our life so that we can help our spouse become the lovely creature God created them to be, that they can become more and more like Jesus. They can begin to look more and more like him. Now think how that might transform our lives and our expectations and the way we function in our marriage if we change that thinking. If suddenly the goal, the primary goal in our marriage relationship was that I'm going to do everything I can. I'm willing to give my life to helping my spouse become who Jesus wants them to be. And I'm willing to help them on that journey. I'm going to join them and God in that journey to become all that God intended them to be. You know what, when we, most of us, when we look for somebody to marry, we look for a finished statue. Maybe we ought to be looking for a wonderful piece of marble. Not so that we can create the person that we want them to be, but so that we can join God and them in allowing God to turn them into what he wants them to be. You know, um, Michelangelo was asked one time about his magnificent David statue, uh, how he did it, and he responded, I simply carved away everything that didn't look like David. And what if our goal in marriage was to help our spouse in their life carve away everything that doesn't look like Jesus? You know, when a young couple stands before their friends and family to say their wedding vows, what if their perspective wasn't on, boy, we're getting married just so we can have a healthy marriage, or we're getting married because we're so in love with each other, or we're getting married so that my needs can be met? What if their perspective as they stood in front of that, those people that day was that they were also standing before God in anticipation that someday they would spend eternity in God? And that in eternity, God would welcome them to heaven and he would say to them, welcome, friends. You've done a great job. You've done a great job of loving each other. You've done a great job of encouraging each other. You've done a great job of praying for each other and lifting each other up before God. You've done a great job of helping to push and press each other to become what Jesus wants you to be. At times you have confronted each other and rebuked each other. You have loved each other. You have hugged each other. But overall, you just kept pushing each other to become more and more and more like Jesus. And I'm telling you this morning, as I've thought about this this week, I thought, you know, if, if, if that would be true in our church, if that would be true in our marriage relationships, if that would be true 
in the marriage relationships that are sitting here in this audience today that are yet to come. Think how that would transform us. If we would change our thinking and change our mindset to say, it's not just about having my needs met. It's not about me being demanding. It's about me being willing to lay down my life so I can help my spouse become the lovely creature that God intended them to be. I think it would change us. And it would change our marriages. And some of the petty stuff that we struggle with wouldn't be such a big deal anymore, would it? Because it would be all about helping our spouse become 